Welcome to Finding Medina, Episode 2, The Casas Revolt. I'm Brandon Seal. On September 16th, 1810, el 16 de septiembre, Father Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, a parish priest in the small town of Dolores, Guanajuato, unleashed a cry of protest over centuries of Spanish exploitation of New Spain. His grito set off a revolt that swept across Mexico more rapidly than anyone could have predicted, including probably Father Hidalgo himself. Five days after the grito, Hidalgo and his growing band of followers captured the nearby town of Celaya. Seven days later, they defeated the small Spanish garrison of Guanajuato and killed the Spanish governor there. A month later, they took modern-day Morelos, and by November 1st, they were at the gates of Mexico City. Father Hidalgo, like Napoleon in the previous episode, quickly recognized that San Antonio was fertile ground for an independence movement and a critical supply station to a sympathetic United States. As such, he endorsed the plan of a retired San Antonio militia captain named Juan Bautista de las Casas to capture the town, raise the banner of revolt there, and use it to supply the heartland of Mexico in the battles to come. De Las Casas was encouraged in his plan by San Antonio's civic leaders, who had grown concerned over Governor Manuel Salcedo's stated intention to send San Antonio's military units south to help put down Hidalgo's revolt. San Antonians were, frankly, still undecided as to the merits of Father Hidalgo's revolt, yet they were united in their opposition to sending away the military units on which the town depended for its defense against hostile Indians, civic instability, and foreign invasions all of which menaced at the moment. Further, most of the men in the unit stationed in San Antonio were from San Antonio, and their departure would have posed severe hardships on local families and the entire community. And so many, if not most San Antonians, were happy to help de las Casas, if for no other reason than to keep their boys at home. Before dawn on January 22, 1811, after several weeks of plotting, and with nearly the entire town as accomplices, De Las Casas and most of the local militia marched quietly in columns to the Plaza de Armas. They positioned themselves strategically throughout the square and around town, covering all possible escape routes and focusing their attention on Governor Manuel Salcedo's home. When the governor emerged that morning to go about his daily duties, he found himself surrounded. He was arrested, along with his top lieutenants, who were soon marched south to the Rio Grande in chains, after which De Las Casas sent out men to Nacogdoches and the rest of the province to capture any other royalists, gachupines as they call the peninsular-born Spaniards, and to announce the arrival of Father Hidalgo's revolution on Texas's shores. When I first sat down to read Royalist General Joaquin de Arredondo's post-action report of the Battle of Medina, I was pretty sure I was going to solve the mystery of this 200-year-old battlefield right then and there. I just had a feeling that some great epiphany would strike me, or that I'd be able to make some ingenious deduction that would lead me to the spot that had eluded other searchers for two centuries now. In retrospect, it's easy to see the arrogance contained in that way of thinking, 
But you don't undertake this kind of project unless you have a little bit of that kind of delusional ambition driving you. Similarly, our delusional and ambitious Battle of Medina research team had decided to divide and conquer the subject matter. Crystal, Rob, and Zach charged themselves with reviewing all the scholarship of the battle and all the archaeological surveys in the area, playing, of course, to their own professional expertise. I, in turn, was tasked with surveying all of the primary accounts to see what conclusions I might independently come to with respect to the location of the Medina battlefield while avoiding secondary sources for as long as possible. In the principal and most primary account of the Battle of Medina is the post-action report of Royalist General Joaquin de Arredondo, which I just mentioned. My first encounter with Arredondo's account was through a 1908 English translation, which we'll post a link to on the episode webpage on the Rivard Report. I was unsatisfied with reading Arredondo's account in translation, however, and so I dispatched a friend in Mexico City, actually the publisher of my Spanish-language novel, El Inmortal Vaquero Quigley, for anyone who's interested. I sent him to the Archivo General de la Nación to get a copy of the original. And boy, am I glad I did. Although the 1908 English translation of Arredondo's account is good, it goes to great lengths to smooth out Arredondo's prose and to calm his raging pen. By contrast, Arredondo's personality comes through unfiltered in the original Spanish, which I had another friend transcribe and post as well to our Rivard Report episode page. Arredondo's account is equal parts bureaucratic detail and self-promotion, both of which Arredondo supplies with the self-certainty of an internet troll and with just as much disregard for punctuation. On those rare occasions when he does punctuate his stream of thought, he seems to prefer semicolons to periods, perhaps an expression of his energy or maybe of the adrenaline rush following the battle. Podcasts aren't the best format for extended readings of rambling 19th century Spanish military reports, so I'll just summarize the highlights for you here. On July 26, 1813, Arredondo, with maybe 1,000 or so men, departed from Laredo. This is a more important detail than you may initially think, because there weren't that many roads in Texas at this time, and knowing that he was on the Laredo Road gives us a pretty good linear trajectory to follow. Around August 1st, he was in the vicinity of modern-day Choke Canyon, where he was joined by the Royalist troops under Colonel Ignacio Elizondo, whose name you should take note of, as we'll see plenty more of him. This brought the total Royalist command to 1,830 men. To be precise, 1,195 cavalry and 635 infantry. For the next two weeks, the Royalists continued north, enduring the savage August sun and the merciless South Texas plains, some were down to rags by the time they approached San Antonio, though in Arredondo's words, quote, I saw in them the most urgent desire to confront as soon as possible the evil rabble and all their arrogance. My troops did not have to wait long, most excellent sir, he's addressing the viceroy, to see their wishes come true, end quote. On August 17th, 1813, the day before the battle, Arredondo, quote, made camp a league and a half this side of a place called Rancherias. End quote. Now pay attention to this part. Quote, On the 18th of August, I directed my march toward the Medina River, changing the course I was on to cross the river at a different point than the direct road, owing to the fact that there was a canyon on the direct road which would have offered substantial benefit to the enemy 
if he were to try to set an ambush there in the thick woods that covered it, end quote. So fearing an ambush in the thick Encinal de Medina on the road ahead, Arredondo sent forth a 180-man skirmishing party under Colonel Ignacio Elizondo to probe. Sure enough, the Republicans had set an ambush on the road, and Elizondo, with his 180 men, would have stumbled right into it had not the Republicans prematurely given away their position by firing on one of Elizondo's outriders. Elizondo was an impulsive man, as we'll see several times later in this series. Knowing this, and wanting to restrain him, Arredondo had made it abundantly clear to him that he was not, under any circumstances, to engage at length with the Republican enemy. Arredondo actually repeated this twice in his battle report, and attached one of his aides-de-camp to Elizondo to make sure he didn't forget this order. Instead, Arredondo ordered Elizondo to, quote, maintain contact with the enemy as he retreated toward me, notifying me as soon as possible so that I might make the appropriate disposition of my troops. I let Elizondo know the route that I had chosen to cross the Medina River and the path I was on so that he might follow it in his retreat in order to join up with me, end quote. Arredondo was using Elizondo as bait, and it worked. As soon as the Republicans fired on Elizondo's outrider, they realized that they had given up their ambush position and launched a full-on attack on Elizondo's unit. Hearing the sounds of battle, Arredondo sent forth another 150 men under San Antonian Juan Manuel Zambrano, who we met in the previous episode as the town's most vocal royalist. When the Republicans saw Zambrano's men join Elizondo's, they thought it was the entire royalist force. And to their pleasant surprise, they clearly outnumbered this force. Quote, the taste of victory made them bold, end quote. Overwhelmed now by the 1,400 Republicans rapidly encircling them, Elizondo and Zambrano began to pull back. They retreated in good order, however, sticking to the path that Arredondo had told them to follow. Elizondo and Zambrano reached the safety of Arredondo's main body not a moment too soon, and now it was the pursuing Republicans' turn to be surprised. Quoting Arredondo again, quote, They encountered the full brunt of my army, drawn up in battle formation, with the artillery positioned on the flanks. Only the infinitude of oak trees on the field of battle gave them cover to reform their lines, which they did, yet they continued advancing with too much ardor, ultimately coming to within pistol range. The enemy continued to respond in turn, however, approaching to within 40 paces of our lines with their artillery. For more than two hours, this gruesome action ensued, without either knowing the outcome. End quote. I'm going to leave you with that cliffhanger for now, so we can review the geographic clues that Arredondo has given us as to the battlefield location. First, he indicates pretty clearly that he started the morning of the battle on the road from Laredo approaching San Antonio. Second, he states that on the 17th of August, 1813, the night before the battle, quote, I camped with my army a league and a half north of Rancherias, end quote. If we could identify Rancherias and confirm the route of the Laredo Road in 1813, we could pretty well fix the position of Arredondo on the morning of the battle, which would be something. Third, and this is the excerpt that every student of the Battle of Medina fixates on, Arredondo's description of his line of march on the morning of battle seems to be a critical clue. We'll read it again. Quote, on the 18th of August, 
I directed my march toward the Medina River, changing the course I was on to cross the river at a different point than the direct road. End quote. While I experienced no great epiphany while reading Arredondo's battle account as to the battlefield location, the old royalist general had given me some good clues to start our search from. Namely, if we could find Rancherias, we could pin down Arredondo's starting point on the morning of the battle. And if we could identify a canyon of some kind on the 1813 Laredo Road, we could probably confirm the spot where the Republicans started on the morning of the battle. Crystal, Rob, and Zach, meanwhile, had reviewed all the known archaeological surveys in the area. Our area of interest wasn't far from the only slightly less contentious and never-built Applewhite Reservoir. As such, quite a few archaeological digs had been performed nearby in the 1980s and 90s during the heyday of the Applewhite debate. Yet none of these archaeological digs had turned up anything. Which seems pretty odd, doesn't it? 3,000-plus men had thrown iron and lead at each other at 40 paces for two hours and left behind no evidence of it? It made us wonder if we were even looking in the right part of the world. So then, Crystal, Rob, and Zach went back and carefully reviewed the maps being used by various scholars of the battle and realized that nearly everyone was working off of different presumed routes for the 1813 roads into San Antonio. Unlike most history projects, this one has a correct answer. It's whatever leads us to archaeological confirmation of the location of the Battle of Medina. As we've seen from Arredondo's account, the broad strokes of the battle are pretty well documented, as well as the respective armies' movements in relation to each other. Yet without a precise knowledge of the locations of the roads themselves, where they started their march, where they set their ambush, etc., we might as well have just been throwing darts at a map. But in talking this much about the battle location, we've gotten ahead of ourselves in the narrative a little bit. It's worth our time to step back and revisit the events that set off this revolution in the first place. In retelling the story of the Casas Revolt, nearly 40 years after the fact, José Antonio Navarro said that de las Casas only, quote, accepted the command ordered him by the citizens and military garrison of San Antonio because he believed the time had come to do battle against the natural enemies of this country. And above all, because he was one of those men who, because of excessive courtesy, was unable to refuse a favor or to withstand opportunity, end quote. Navarro followed up this sympathetic, if unflattering, description by adding that de las Casas was a man of only mediocre talents, and that he soon, quote, found himself among people who had no knowledge of warfare, no political initiative, and with no better guide than a blind lust for vengeance, end quote. Following the spirit of the times, de las Casas quickly declared his revolution to be against European rule, and ordered the arrest of all pure-blooded Spaniards in Texas and the confiscation of their property. San Antonio wasn't actually home to that many pure-blooded Spaniards, but many people saw in this decree a chance to settle old scores. De Las Casas evidently did little to filter the accusations that soon flooded in, and he began to seize the property of the many alleged Spaniards in his midst, eventually casting the net so wide as to threaten the families and associates of many of his original supporters, including the venerable Delgado family, 
who will become the tragic center of so much attention in this series. Remember the Delgado name, please. Unfortunately for De Las Casas, the opening days of the so-called Casas Revolt in San Antonio coincided with the arrival of news of atrocities perpetrated by Hidalgo's forces down in central Mexico. This left San Antonians acutely uneasy. It also dawned on many locals that Governor Salcedo was not without friends in high places, like specifically an uncle who was the comandante of all of the northeastern provinces of New Spain and in charge of a lot of regular Spanish soldiers. San Antonians began to second-guess what they had done. On March 2, 1811, just five weeks or so after the so-called Casas Revolt had begun, ten of San Antonio's leading men met in secret at Juan Manuel Zambrano's ranch. The group included not only the hardline Royalist Zambrano brothers, but also disillusioned Republicans like the Delgados, Arrochas, Ruiz, Navarros, as well as the commander of the local militia, Erasmo Seguin. The next morning, March 3rd, 1811, in coordination with the other conspirators, Seguin and his men mutinied against De Las Casas. Republicans and Royalists had come together to install De Las Casas, and they would come together again now to depose him. When the mutineers surrounded De Las Casas, he called them out, quote, Are you the same individuals who placed me in this office, and now you add infamy to treason by capturing me and delivering me to the gallows? End quote. Juan Manuel Zambrano, soon to be president of the counter-revolutionary junta that would replace him, might have answered him yes. Then again, he might not have needed to say anything at all. It was now Captain de las Casas' turn to march south in chains. The uprising had not gone much better for Father Hidalgo. After marching his army to within striking distance of Mexico City, he lost his nerve and pulled back. The momentum swung wildly back in favor of the royalists, who regrouped and began taking back the towns lost in the initial fervor of Father Hidalgo's revolt with just as much violence and bloodshed. Pretty soon, it was Father Hidalgo who was on the run, fleeing north toward Coahuila as his revolutionary army disintegrated beneath him. Only Hidalgo's closest advisors, including perhaps an aged San Antonio colonel named Antonio Delgado, knew his true destination. Hidalgo was headed somewhere where he might extend the royalist supply lines and shorten his own, somewhere hostile to Spaniards, both geographically and politically, and somewhere where the flame of revolt still burned bright, or so he thought. Father Hidalgo was headed to San Antonio. What he didn't know was that his path took him directly past the ranch where former Texas Governor Manuel Salcedo was being held prisoner, and, more importantly, where Governor Salcedo's jailer was having serious doubts about his commitment to the cause of Mexican independence. That jailer was Colonel Ignacio Elizondo, whom you might recall from General Arredondo's battle report, and whom you might also recall, I told you, was a bit impulsive. Elizondo had been among the first Spanish regular army officers to actually declare in favor of Father Hidalgo's revolt. But the revolution either couldn't quite figure out what to do with him, or didn't quite trust him, and he was relegated to the rather unimpressive role of simply serving as Governor Salcedo's jailer. Colonel Elizondo, however, soon began to believe that being a prison guard was beneath his dignity, and that the revolution didn't really know how to value his talents. Coincidentally, 
Right around the time that Father Hidalgo's movement stalled out, Colonel Elizondo saw the total error of his ways and came back to the royalist fold. He released Governor Salcedo and began to conspire with him and other royalist sympathizers to ambush the retreating Hidalgo. On the next Finding Medina. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out the webpage associated with this episode on rivardreport.com, where we've updated our project map and posted General Arredondo's post-action report of the Battle of Medina. I also want to reiterate that the entire premise of this season of the podcast is to bring all the information that we can out into the light in a public forum where we can draw on the collective or hidden wisdom of our community to try and glean something new about this battle and about its location. So don't be afraid to chime in here on the episode webpage if you think we're overlooking something or have some information that we don't. Also, go to iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Because if everyone who listened to this series left a review, it would launch these important historical events to the top of the charts. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend George Gaitan for letting us use his music on this series. You can find out more about him at georgegaitan.tripod.com. Thanks to my SWCA research buddies, Crystal Allgood, Rob Lakowitz, and Zachary Overfield, as well as San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Thanks to Brian Stauffer, our unofficial old Spanish document transcriber, to Samantha Alanis, our cartographer-in-chief, to Cesar Gutierrez, my publisher and our official Archivo General de la Nación researcher, and to UTSA's Dean of Libraries, Dean Hendricks, our unofficial all-other document finder. And for more information about our podcasts and other projects, check us out at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>